over. Good morning, ZPC. Greatly done. All right, wasted half the time on this. I do want to say one thing uh, before we kind of start with the sermon. Uh, you know, we've had this, uh, the property that we've been working on over uh, the last uh, several years. And so uh, you'll remember this Catching the Wind property campaign. Uh, I have several weaknesses as a leader. Uh, one of those weaknesses is that um, I oftentimes, I really like getting something started and doing that. And then once it's done, I like moving on quickly. Uh, and I have a propensity to do that even when it comes to the property. Like, okay, we've raised enough. Now let's, let's move on. And that means oftentimes that I don't share enough about where we are in the whole process. So I just want to quickly kind of let you all know throughout this whole next year and a half or two years, however long all this takes, uh, where we are. I'm going to do my best just to keep communicating that. Uh, right now, we're doing a schematic design. Doesn't that sound exciting? Uh, and schematic design is um, is where they just get more and more details, the architects do, and so they will hopefully be done with that here in a couple of weeks, uh, and then we'll move on to the next thing, which is getting everything kind of more ready for construction. So I wanted to let you know that. I also wanted to let you know um, that, remember, our goal was to raise about $10 million, uh, and then we needed to have $13 million in all to do the project, um, but we were going to take out a mortgage of whatever we didn't have over $10 million. And so I just wanted to let you know where we stand right now in terms of our property uh, drive and our pledge drive. And here's the number where we are right now, $11,372,467. And that is a real gift, obviously. Every dollar that we raise is a dollar that we don't have to put uh, towards a mortgage. And so we are very thankful. Uh, I know that there are still some of you who haven't pledged. You've told me, hey, look, we still haven't pledged yet, but we're going to. And so obviously we continue to take those in. uh, And so you can continue to give. But I really do want to give God praise for the abundance with which you all have given. I want you to know what a gift it is to us at ZPC and certainly what a gift it is to me as well. All right, well, we are continuing our look at the book of Luke, Uh, and so we are in chapter 12. Last week, um, we did the first 12 verses, and this week, a little bit more, uh, verses 13 through 34, Uh, and so let us begin. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this, I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. He said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds? 
And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do a small, do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep seeking what you are to eat and what you are to drink. And do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that seek all these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your position, possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out or unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray for your presence this morning, that you would be with us. We pray, God, that as we listen to your words from long ago, that they would speak to us right now, right where we are. And I pray, Lord, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. And amen. All right, let's start by remembering again where we are. Jesus is continuing in his march toward Jerusalem. That's exactly right, towards the cross, towards uh, his impending death. And so as we've been saying many times now in this over the last couple of chapters, as Jesus is doing this, he realizes that he has to kind of really spend a lot of time with the disciples, right? Mentoring them, teaching them, loving them, encouraging them, because they are the ones who are going to continue this ministry and mission of Jesus Christ. But of course, at the same time, the crowds are really beginning to swell also who are wanting to hear more about Jesus and be with Jesus even more. And so all of these things are going. And one of the interesting things is just to watch as it kind of goes back and forth as Jesus, as we'll see today, is with the crowd. And then he turns and he begins to pay more attention to the disciples. But we start with the crowds. There is Jesus and he's going and all of a sudden a man from the crowd looks over at Jesus and he says, uh, he says, Rabbi, will you please uh, uh, tell my brother to, to, to split well our inheritance? And Jesus looks to him and he says, friend, or, or more as it actually would have sounded more colloquially uh, for us, he says, hey man, uh, who made me judge and arbiter over you? Now, if you were here last week, you know that we talked a little bit about kind of some of the final judgment and Jesus kind of being the judge. And so if the man had been paying attention, which he probably had, he probably would have looked and said, wait, I thought you were. I thought you told us that you were going to be the judge. Why are you switching now? I thought I had you figured out. And even if he wasn't there, the truth is that rabbis and teachers in that time were often those who were helping to settle 
familial disputes about legal issues like inheritances. So in one sense, we should think, well, Jesus, you are the one who said that you were supposed to do this. What are you talking about? And if that was all that we had to this scripture, we would be left simply scratching our heads. However, Jesus goes on. And when he begins to go on, it begins to become clear the reason why Jesus was not going to arbitrate this particular situation. You see, what Jesus understood is he understood the question behind the question. He understood what was actually underneath the question. What he began to understand was that this was actually not a question about inheritance. This was not a question about justice, which is exactly uh, what this man in the crowd was trying to say. Hey, uh, let's make this just. Let's make this right. What Jesus seemed to understand is that this wasn't actually about justice. It was actually about greed. And so while he packaged amazingly well the question in such a way that it made him look and feel good, what Jesus understood is that he was hiding and distracting from what was really at the root of what he wanted. I find very fascinating what Eugene Peterson says about this when it comes to our own lives. He says this, he says, Virtually every temptation that comes to those of us who are committed to Jesus and have thrown ourselves sacrificially into a life of following Jesus comes in the form of something right and necessary and obviously good. What is Peterson saying? Peterson's saying, you know, especially for those of us who are committed to Jesus and who have been looking at this for a while, we oftentimes will package something so that it makes us look and feel good, but very likely is hiding other things. Right? One of the examples, of course, we have of that, you've probably seen this, is just, you know, when someone feels like they're doing something for a right cause, and, and, and because they feel like they're doing something for such a right cause, it does not matter the medium in which they use to do it. They can get as angry as they want. They can be as indignant as they want. They can be as arrogant as they want because they have this great cause, whatever it might be, that looks packaged and looks pretty, and yet they don't actually look at the fact that they aren't doing it in love. They aren't doing it gently. They aren't doing it out of a sense of patience. They're not doing it in any of the other ways to which Jesus speaks. But we package something so beautifully that we make it so wonderful as we talk about a lot, so righteously indignant. We feel so good about it because we can package it just like this that we are completely oblivious to the reality that we are actually worrying about and have other issues of sin and brokenness that we are hiding in the very midst of trying to look much better to ourselves and to others. What Peterson would say is that if nothing else, it should give us a sense of always being humble. Whenever it is that we are doing the work of Jesus, always know that we are tempted to try and package something beautifully in order to hide something else that might be underneath it. In this case, the man trying to talk about justice, and yet really he was simply hiding his greed. And so Jesus, of course, even though the man said justice, Jesus heard greed. And so he then decides that he's going to tell a story. And the story goes like this. It says, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Before we talk about the story, let's talk about greed. Now, I want to talk about greed right here because here's what I know is that as soon as I say the word greed, there are many of us who will quickly and easily just kind of shut down and say, well, thankfully, I came here this morning and this message is not for me. 
Because greed is a really odd sin because it's a sin that most of us don't think we wrestle with. Greed, as many have said, I think rightfully so, by its very nature remains hidden. I love what one person says, which is that greed is really, it's almost like it's the small parasite within the intestines of wealth. You see, unlike some other areas of sin or brokenness, greed loves to stay out of the spotlight. Uh, One pastor I heard, he was talking about how he, over seven weeks, did like a Wednesday night uh, class on the seven deadly sins. And before he even began, his wife said to him, you know, Greed will be the least attended of these. And she was right. People were more than happy to come and say, pride, oh, I need to hear about pride. Gluttony, please, I need to hear about gluttony. But greed, oh, I don't need to hear about greed. Greed's not really about me, but there's a reason, of course, why Jesus talks about greed more than sex. Ten times more he talks about money And so there's this question then that before we kind of more quickly say, oh, well, that's not really about me. I just want to encourage you to stay engaged and just to consider how sneaky greed might be. So Jesus begins then with this story. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. Now, here's one of the things that's significant about this. What's the subject of this sentence? The land. Is the subject of the sentence the rich man? No. And we know that, of course, because the verb produced is not going to the rich man. It is going to the land. And so from the very beginning, the way that Jesus is starting to tell this story is by saying one of the issues about greed is that we quickly begin to forget from whom all of our possession and wealth comes from. It was not the rich man who just kind of produced this land himself out of nothing, nor was it he who made the crops rise. No, what Jesus already from the very beginning is helping us to see is that the first sneaky step towards greed is a forgetfulness about where it is that every single thing that we have, even our very breath, where it comes from. The road toward greed is often littered with amnesia about where our possessions have come from. So Jesus then continues the story, and he says this, And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. Now, back in 2015, when I last preached on this, you guys remember that? What I said was that this sentence or these sentences, they would have graded on the ears of the community that heard this. They may not grate on our ears, but they would have grated on the ears of those who were hearing that story 2,000 years ago. Why? Because of all the possessiveness. What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. You see, there is an individualism to this sentence that most of us just think, oh yeah, Yeah, had a boy. 
but would have been anathema back then because everything happened in a sense of community. You see, what would have happened is that they would have gone likely to the city gates there where the elders oftentimes were, and the rich man would have gone and he would have said, oh, I've got a problem. Oh, what is it? Well, the problem is I don't know what to do with all of these goods. And they would have said, oh, this is a good question. And then they would have spent much of the day kind of arguing and debating. And if anyone had just come in and said, well, this is what you should do. Let's end the conversation. They would have been highly annoyed because this is the kind of community they like to discuss and debate and discern together. But what all of a sudden you begin to see is how this man's wealth had begun to separate him from his community. And while it may not grate on our ears, here's what it does do. It helps to remind us of this uncomfortable truth about what wealth can do and what greed will do, which is to begin to separate us from the community around us and even perhaps separate a whole community from the communities around us. Here's what Ken Bailey says. He says, when he needs a dialogue, he can talk only to himself. Thus, we begin to get Jesus' picture of the kind of prison that wealth can build. He has the money to buy a vacuum. What might we call it? A bubble. Right? That's the language that we use, laughingly. A bubble and live in it. Life in this vacuum, life in this bubble creates its own realities. And out of this warped perspective, we hear him announce his solution. You see, here's what I want to argue about this, which is that actually the wealthy man, he saw very clearly, very clearly. It's why it seemed very normal to him. He saw very clearly. The problem was he was looking through a microscope of wealth. If the question had simply been, what should you do with all of your money, then the answer he gave was absolutely right. You see, wealth and greed begins to help us focus so much on this particular place or our particular area, Zionsville, Carmel, North Indy, that all of a sudden we begin to see very clearly and we think this is very normative. This is the way it is. And you begin to only compare yourself with them. And all of a sudden you think, well, well, I'm living very freely. I mean, look at this. Look at all the other really wealthy people. I'm living. This is exactly normal. I'm I'm basically a peasant in Zionsville. And you see that very clearly, and yet what we begin to see is we are not seeing anything else around us. The wealthy man saw very clearly what he saw, but he was completely blinded to the importance of one's relationship with God or one's relationship with others. Jesus then continued, And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You see, this, the importance of this sentence right here, is it helps us to begin to understand why greed. 
See, it's really easy for us just to kind of caricature the rich man and just think, oh, well, he's just, you know, he's just kind of this uh, jerk. He's a, he's a Scrooge, you know, and, and, and so we just begin to think like that. And that's very convenient. We love doing that. Why? Because if we can think of somebody like that, guess who it's not? Yeah, it's not us. Why is it that he's able to sleep? He's going to go to sleep that night. He's going to be able to breathe. It's going to be great. He's going to exhale. And the reason, of course, is because he thinks now, I have all of these abundance and possessions. Therefore, I am secure. Therefore, I am in control. Therefore, I don't need to worry about anything else. You see, what it begins to display is the reality that at the root of greed is really in many ways just this sense and this desire for us to be secure. It is this hope and desire for us to feel at peace. It is this hope for us to feel like we are in control. You see, every dollar saved makes most of us feel just a little bit better, just a bit further removed from being vulnerable, just a skosh less fearful. While greed can certainly take this kind of ugly sense that most of us might conjure in our mind, more often than not, it simply has to do with feeling safe and secure. I love what Luke Timothy Johnson says about this. He says, it is out of deep fear that the acquisitive instinct grows monstrous. Life seems so frail and contingent that many possessions are required to secure it. This is good. Even though the possessions are frailer still than life. You see, our desire to acquire becomes monstrous, which may seem like stark terms or too strong, but it's true. And what's fascinating, of course, is what, what he's saying here is that the problem is these possessions actually make us feel even more vulnerable. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of this uh, Greek myth I had forgotten. I had to go back and look it up. I kind of remember generally it uh, about Ersichthon, I think is the name, about this king, right? And, and he went and he cut down some trees. And after he did that, uh, he was punished. And his punishment uh, by the goddess was that he was going to be hungry, have an insatiable hunger. But what really made it bad is that the more he ate, the hungrier he got, and so eventually, even though he was a king, he ran out of all of his wealth. In order to have all of this food, he ran out of all the wealth. And so he ends up selling his daughter into slavery so that he can get even more money. But then he runs out of that. And the conclusion of the story is after he'd run out of all of that, he simply ate himself. See, I love that image because to me, this is what happens. We begin to think, oh, I know what I need. I, I, I want to feel safer. I want to feel more secure. I need more wealth. But the more wealth you begin to have, you realize, as Luke Timothy Johnson said, that that's actually frail. and It makes you feel even frailer. And even though you think this is what's going to make me feel better, it helps. It makes you actually feel even more vulnerable. So then you say, I need even more. And then the more that you get, the more frail that you feel. And then the more frail that you feel, the more you feel like you need to have. I talked about this uh, a few months ago or a year ago. I can't remember how about in 2008 when the economy was tanking, remember, and everyone was pulling their hair out and they were like, oh my goodness, and I, you know what, and when I looked at my retirement, you know what, I felt no fear or anxiety because I had no money. It was no problem. I was like, drop, baby, drop. I don't care. But then when the economy, you know, back when COVID had started to drop, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I've saved some money for retirement. And so then I'm like pulling out my own air and I'm like, oh my goodness, come on, where is the money going? 
You see, simply having more and more, it may feel like it's going to make us feel safe and secure, but the reality is it makes us more and more vulnerable if this is where we feel like our peace and security comes from. Augustine put it like this, the rich fool did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Now at this point, we have a shift that I want us to pay attention to. Because at this point, Jesus stops talking to the crowds. And he turns and he has a more intimate conversation with his disciples. And he looks at them and he begins to talk. And that's what I love because he begins to describe exactly what we have just said about what is at the root of greed. Because he starts talking. He doesn't say, stop being greedy. I've got to convince you 12 of this. Stop being greedy. He says, no, you can't outwill it. Instead, he begins to talk to them about anxiety. And he begins to talk to them about their fear. Because you see, again, as we have just said, this is exactly what is at the root of greed. It's not just like, oh, let's just get more stuff so that we can look cooler. Yeah, that's the way it is for some folks. But by and large, at the root of it for us, it's not that. It comes out of a sense of anxiety and fear. So he says, look at those lilies. Look, you know, look at the ravens. Look at these things, right? But now here is what is incredibly significant that we have to see, which is that this is where, once again, this beautiful nugget of gospel comes through. And I want us to hear this. Because Jesus begins to show us how it is that we can actually begin to face greed well. You see, the gospel is always about Jesus taking the first steps. And that's what we see here. What does Jesus say? He begins to say, look, look at the lilies. Are you not more valuable than they are? In other words, he begins by saying, by looking at, remember, this is a more intimate conversation just with the disciples. And he begins to look at them and he begins to say, do you, do you know your value to God? And then, and I love this line, I, I've always loved this line, where he says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, when I think about that little flock, I think about my eight-year-old, and I think about those moments when she's afraid. And what do you do? You just kind of embrace, and you, can, you embrace it so tightly, you can almost feel their heartbeat. And you say, all right, little girl, I'm gonna, I, it's going to be okay. I got you. You're here. You're close. And you see, this is what Jesus is doing. He's just looking at them with this love and saying, little flock, it is, it is God's pleasure to give you everything. And then you have this very last line, right, that we've said a couple times already. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Now, now, when we hear those words, I would suggest we almost always just think about, and I think this is true, that it's simply about, well, you know what? If you want to know where your heart is, look at where your treasure is, right? We've talked about this before. You want to know where your heart is? Look at your budget. Look at your bank account. 
Look at where you're spending money. That tells you where your heart is, and that's all good and right. But let me also remind you of this, that this is this moment again where Jesus has them all in this kind of intimate setting, and he is looking at each and every one of them, and he is saying, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You see, what Jesus is doing here, he is not saying this is how you should live. He is also saying this is how I do live. And as he is looking at the these disciples, he is also saying to them, you are my treasure. You are my heart. I have given up all the power and authority of staying up in heaven. I have given up any desire for wealth. I have no place to lay my head. And I have done all of that because of my love for you. You are my treasure and my heart. Because the only way for us to be able to really start wrestling with greed is to begin with the question, do you know and trust that you are the heart and the treasure of God? And it is only when you begin from that place, when you can breathe out of the great sense of peace, that comes from knowing God's love for you that you can then begin to look at greed without becoming so defensive. You see, and I think it's at this point, once you've really begun to understand and believe that truth, that then you can begin to see this look at greed more as something kind of fascinating to do rather than something to which you need to just kind of beat yourself over and say almost like a detective, huh, I wonder how might I be a person of greed? How might possessions and money have actually become my source of security and control and peace? As I was thinking about it this week, I was reminded kind of of, I think it's a bit like when you do some of these spiritual practices to try to do some investigation. It's a bit like what I would do when I was a kid uh, and I had a flat tire on my bike. So when you have a flat tire on your bike, you're like, hey, I wonder what's going on. Maybe it's a hole. It's probably a hole. And so, you, you know, you take off the rubber part. And what do you do to see if there's really a hole and where it is? Water. This is at least what I would do, right? You kind of blow it up and then you put it in a bucket of water. And what happens if there's a hole? Bubbles, right? And now you may not have been sure. Maybe there's not a hole. I don't know. And you put it in there, and all of a sudden you say, oh, there is a hole, and you can find where the hole is, and you can finally begin to fix it. And see, I think that there are a lot of kind of interesting spiritual experiments that one can do in order to begin to assess, am I in some way, do I wrestle with greed? Which, by the way, I think actually almost all of us do. So one of the ways that we can do this, Luke uh, Powery talks about this. Uh, this is gonna, maybe not a great place to start, but I'm going to start there anyways. Is, is to frequent funerals. Or at least to go to a cemetery. Because, you see... What this rich fool understood far too late was he began to realize how foolish it was to think that his security and comfort and control was going to be found in possessions because, of course, he just died. And there are few things that's helpful for us to be able to reprioritize as being able to come and being able to remember. Because, man, we are masters at trying to forget that death will not come for us. 
But I think there are a few things that are as good at unmasking this as an urn or a coffin or a tombstone. I have the great gift and pain of having to be a part of a lot of funerals. And I have to tell you, in terms of spiritual disciplines and what is perhaps the best thing at trying to keep me humble and keep my priorities straight is being able to continually remember that no matter how I might try to fool myself, death comes for us all. That was a great place to start. Let's think about a different thing. You're like, no, I I don't want to do that. Another way, of course, and this is a way that we talk about a lot, is generosity. There are far, uh, there's not very many better ways to kind of see how attached am I to my things than being generous, right? By giving money. It's one of the greatest ways to be able to see, I wonder, I wonder just how attached I am. Let me try to be kind of ridiculously, absurdly generous and see what it does to my heart. Now, you see, I think part of the reason why this is important is because most of us, again, we just think, oh, no, I'm, I'm actually not that attached. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of something I do almost every year. I did it, uh, I think it was in May this year. I did it for the month where I kind of made my smartphone into a dumb phone. And I said, okay, I'm not going to go on the internet, really. I'm I'm not going to look at any emails on this. I'm just going to use it the old-fashioned way, right? And so we're just going to do phone calls, yes, and some text, right? And you see, almost every year that I do it, when I go into it, I think, I'm not attached to this thing. And you know why I think I'm not attached to it? Because I see how much you guys are on your phone. No, not you guys, but others. I see people on their phones all the time, and it doesn't matter what age it is, right? It could be somebody, oh, they're playing games all the time. Oh, these youngsters are always, like, doing these games or social media, whatever, Wordle. That's all of our older folks, right? They're all, oh, yeah, right? My, uh, my mom will hear this. I'll say it later. Uh, it's at 1045, but um, so, you know, uh, even older folks, right, they love games on their phones. They love these word games. Well, I'm just trying to stave off, you know, uh, you know, anything that might happen in my brain, right? That's fine. But they're on it so much, right? So when it comes to this, I think to myself, <laughs> oh, I don't have problems like these. And then that first day, it is brutal. Right? I'm constantly doing this. I'm constantly picking up my phone and being like, this is frustrating. I'm constantly doing this, right? not just for the first day, but for the first several days, typically for the first week. And all of a sudden, it begins to be exposed just how addicted I actually am, just how much I actually get from that phone. You see, I think, well, if I just compare myself to others, this is reality, then I must not be that addicted to it. So sometimes it is only when we begin to give things away that we really begin to see this. One of the things Richard Foster, uh, one of the challenges that he had, I like this, is he said, you know what, for Christmas, and this is nice, you have five months to prepare. He said, I said, I'm not going to actually buy anything for anyone. Instead, I'm just going to simply give away things that are really important to me. And by doing so, he said, that by just this sense of just doing that, of giving away things, I think one of the things was a bike that he had, and some of these other things that were really of significance to him. It helped him just in this continually shaping, right? And again, this is what I like about this. When you know that you are loved by Jesus, then these things just become kind of fun experiments, right? It's not like, oh, here it is because I feel like I have to. No, no. It's, hey, I want to grow closer to Jesus than others. I want to see how attached am I? And you just start giving. 
course, another thing that you can do is, is by simply being able to enjoy creation. I, I, I say this almost every time I talk about this passage. When Jesus said, consider the ravens and consider the lilies, I don't think he was just saying, hey, you should just kind of reminisce. Just kind of think about this. You know, No, no. I think he was literally saying, get out there and actually begin to consider them. Get out into creation. Go out and begin to look at those things. Begin to notice. Right? I like what John Mark Homer says. He says, if materialism, if consumerism despiritualizes us, he says, being out in nature can re-spiritualize us and our souls. It can begin to reinvigorate us as we begin to remember what is actually important. When we are surrounded only by materialism and by buying and purchasing and what others have, then we will continue to fall into the sense of greed and we will begin to see less and less clearly or our vision will begin to be restricted. Now, the last suggestion I would have is I think one of the things that we can do as Christians and Presbyterians have always kind of prided ourselves, probably too much so, on being thoughtful Christians. But as they begin to be more thoughtful about the ways in which this world is trying to sell us promises that it cannot keep, one of the best ways to do this, I think, is to begin to watch advertisements and begin to ask the question, what are they promising? What are, these pro- what, are these, what are these commercials promising? Maybe it's a car that when you get all the bells and whistles, it makes you so safe. And there's nothing that could ever harm you, right? There's just a sense, well, if I get that, no deer will ever run in front of my way. No way anybody else will ever run into me. No way my teenager will ever run into anyone else. I will just be so safe. It makes these remarkable promises. Or if I get this particular beauty product, then I will feel worthy. Then people will look to me with awe if I just get that. Or, or, or if I hire this particular financial planner, no offense, financial planners, If I hire this particular financial planner, then then he or she will control everything and nothing bad in the future can happen to me. You can go on and on. Now, again, this is not to suggest that you should, you know, uh, that you should only drive motorcycles and just be reckless, uh, you know, and not care about safety or, or, or that you should not use a financial planner. Don't think about the future. This is not to suggest that. It is to ask the question, what are they promising and, and in what ways are these things promising things that are trying to tell you that you can control everything. You can control how safe you are. You can control your own worth and significant. You can control the future and begin to call it out. It can almost be a fun game. If you have kids at home, I would recommend you play that with them. What do you think this commercial is actually trying to tell us? And in what ways is what it's doing is simply trying to deceive? Because no matter how many safe cars, no matter what Volvos you drive or whatever else it may be, no matter how many great beauty products you buy, no matter if you have Warren Buffett as your advisor, none of those things will ultimately bring you any true deep peace. You are asking those things to do things they were never supposed to do or be. You see, my hope and my prayer, sisters and brothers, is that we will be a people who, A, know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus' love for us, little flock, that you are his treasure, you are his heart. 
And that as you begin to kind of wrestle with what does it look like for me to simply do this water test, if you will, to begin to see how attached am I to all of these things, that you will almost take a joy as you begin to discover these places and begin to wrestle with them because you will begin to see the joy that comes from putting your security in God. You will begin to see the joy that comes from giving control to God. The joy that comes from having peace in who God is and not any of these other things. You will begin to experience the joy that comes from being generous. And you will begin to see clearly not just what is right in front of you. Not just what your wealth allows you to see. But you will begin to see more and more of the world around you. Sisters and brothers in Christ, may you know that you are the treasure and the heart of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, might we be a people of joy and peace and security and faith, moving forward and growing in our faith for the one who loves us dearly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you are our peace. And to you, we depend. Help us to understand how you give us breath and life and all that we have and all that we are. For your glory and for your glory alone. Amen and amen.